Father God, we do come before you once more this morning, and we do pray, Lord, that you would come and uh, meet with us through the pages of Scripture. We pray, Lord, that you would give us minds to understand what we're reading, but Lord, I pray especially that your Spirit would come and speak to us through the pages of your Word, that we would hear and receive from you, that we would receive not only just mental nourishment, but spiritual nourishment too. We ask, Lord, for your anointing of your Holy Spirit upon me and upon all of our ears. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you want to open up your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 20. We're continuing our studies through the book of 1 Samuel. And this is our manner this morning, the whole of chapter 20. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you the outline of the talk this morning so you've got some idea of where we're going. We're splitting into uh, six sections. We're going to start off with a bit of a lengthy introduction just to get us all up to speed and to have us to have some perspective as we go into the chapter. And then the first part is there's a meeting between uh, Jonathan and David. Then there's a covenant between Jonathan and David. Uh, they agree a signal and then there's a feast where Saul's true colours are made public and finally there's a separation between Jonathan and David. So as we look at this you can see how far we've gone and how long you have to wait for you before you can have a cup of tea. So uh, yes, let's start off with our introduction. So Saul is the king of Israel but day by day, chapter by chapter, he's becoming more and more unstable. And this instability is the consequence of a number of factors. The first factor that is causing this instability is his disobedience to God. Saul was disobedient to God. The prophet Samuel had instructed Saul, given him the word of the Lord, but Saul had not obeyed the Lord's commands. Uh, Saul is either unsaved or deeply out of fellowship with God. And it's difficult to actually draw a, a rock-hard conclusion on where he stands with God, ultimately in the light of eternity, but clearly he's not in a right place with God. And being out of fellowship with God will make you unstable. The other thing that's affecting him is he's operating in the flesh. God had removed both the kingdom and the Holy Spirit from Saul. So Saul was holding on to an office in his own strength. He was holding on to the throne in his own strength. And this creates an unnatural mental and emotional burden on Saul, a burden he is not equipped to manage. And when you operate in the flesh, when you try to do things in your own strength, that will make you unstable. He's also being governed by jealousy. Uh, God had anointed David to be king and Saul could see the Holy Spirit at work in the life of David. David secured tremendous military victories against all odds. David had the national approval of the people who sung songs about this David. David had the favour of two of his children. He was married to Michal and he was best friends with Jonathan, both of whom had bound themselves to David by way of covenant. It's all David, David, David. What about me is Saul's kind of mindset. I'm the king, not David. And so a deep-seated jealousy, fear and anger towards David had a grip of Saul. And thus Saul was compelled by a paranoia. 
being, being led by your emotions, being led by those deep, deep emotions, will make you unstable. And the fourth thing that was affecting Saul is he was harassed by a demon. Saul has been troubled by a distressing spirit and God had permitted this demon to harass Saul. On top of defiance toward God, holding on to power in his own strength and uh, being governed by dark emotions rooted in jealousy, he was under demonic attack. And having the harassment of a demon in your life will make you unstable. And so when Saul had commanded his servants to kill David, his son Jonathan had defended David, dissuaded him, his father, from this course of action. But when, but later, Saul reneged on his vow and he sent servants to arrest David. And his daughter, Michal, deceived those servants and helped her husband David to escape and David fled to Samuel in Ramah. Now when Saul sent three sets of servants to take David from Naioth in Ramah, the Holy Spirit came on all three sets of messengers and they were incapacitated by virtue of prophesying. Finally, Saul went himself to take David and the Holy Spirit fell upon Saul as well and he was stripped down to his undergarments and was unable to take David as he was compelled to prophesy before God as well. Thus David was able to escape. But what of David? Well, David has four phases in his life, the shepherding years, the wilderness years, and the wilderness years is what we're just in the beginning of, the fighting years, and then eventually his reigning years. Now, if we look at the shepherding years briefly, as the youngest son in the household of Jesse, he served as a shepherd boy out in the fields, tending the flocks, fighting off predators, living as the underdog of the family put upon by his older brothers. But that all changed when the prophet Samuel came and anointed David as the next king of Israel. God's providential hand saw David leave the fields and the sheep and enter the courts of Saul. There he served as minstrel. David went from there to fight and defeat the mighty Goliath of Gath securing a great victory over the Philistines for Israel. And this is where Saul's jealousy begins, because David started to get the accolades that he wanted to get. And this is where David's life starts to get difficult. So the next 10 to 15 years of David's life will be spent in a wilderness. Saul will seek the life of David, and David will be on the run from Saul. But God will use this time to break David, to deal with his fallen character and instill in him a deep godly reliance and faith. Now I've outlined the nature of the wilderness in two talks already. The first is 20 years of silence and the other is the road to brokenness. Both of those talks are on the website if you want to familiarise yourself a bit more about how God uses the wilderness to prepare a person for ministry. But it's important to recognise David is being tested and trained by the Lord for the remainder of the book of 1 Samuel. And so for much of that time, David does what most of us naturally are inclined to do when we face hardship. What do we do naturally when we face hardship and trial? We try to find a way out, don't we? 
we try to find a way of escaping. And that's what we see David doing for the majority of the rest of the book, trying to find a way to get out. He flees to Ramah, then Nob, then Gath, then Adullam, then Moab, then Keilah, then Ziph, then Maoin, then Engedi, back to Ziph, then off to Gath again. And he's always trying to escape, always trying to get away from the trial and the hardship. But finally, when we get to the end of the book, what we will see is he yields to God and he allows God to lead him instead of him leading himself. And I know what it is to be in a wilderness and I know what it is to try to escape. For the three years prior to the start of Calvary Chapel Maystone, the Lord had Abby and I in a wilderness and uh, what you would find me doing of an evening was idling on Rightmove and other websites uh, looking for real estate in Tasmania because somehow I got it into my head, if only I got to Tasmania, I would have a better quality of life and I'd be away from the pain and the struggles that I'm facing at this moment in time. Needless to say, uh, I didn't end up in Tasmania, I ended up here. And when we moved actually from, um, from living room to meeting in here, the first four months or so of meeting here, I found very, very difficult. And Abby will tell you, she found me looking at real estate on my phone again. This time I was looking at Texas, thinking Texas would be a nice place to be. Anywhere beginning with T, basically. Um, eventually, the Lord turned things around and whatever he was trying to do in my life, he managed to accomplish. But this is the way of the wilderness. God will allow you to exhaust all your natural resources to deal with the situation. And then when you're right at the bottom, you will finally learn to lean and trust and rely upon the Lord. Once you are finally broken, you'll come to, um, the Lord will come to you and you'll yield to yourself. You'll, you will yield yourself to him in a way that you've never done before. And you will experience a depth of relationship with the Lord that you've never known before. And that's where God wants to get David to, to that place of complete yielding and brokenness so he's totally reliant upon God. So, you know, uh, it's my job as your pastor to help move you to a place of maturity in Christ. That's why I teach at the front here, because it's part of parcel of trying to move you to that place of maturity in Christ. And I'm telling you about the wilderness because if you intend and purpose to grow in Christ, you will experience trial like David. And you will experience hardship like David. And commit this one thing to your memory this morning. Commit this to your mind. The best thing, the very best thing you can do in a situation of, of hardship and trial is not wrestle and fight your way out of it, but to submit to God in the midst of it and let the disciplinary hand of God do its work in your life. The sooner you submit, the sooner you will learn the lesson and come through the other side. Right, with that as the introduction done, let's go on to the first part, the meeting. So reading from verse one, then David fled to Naioth in Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So Jonathan said to him, by no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. 
Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favour in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go, that I may hide in the field until the third day of evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he, he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me, or what if your father's answer or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go into the field. So both of them went out into the field. So going back to verse 1 there, David flees from Ramah to uh, Jonathan, and he says, What have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Now what kind of state of mind is David in? Is he in a state of peace, trusting God, confident in his position before the Lord? Or is he in a state of distress, turning to man, doubting his position before the Lord? Clearly it's the latter. And you see, David's first instinct was right. He fled to Samuel. He made God his refuge. And what did God do when he was at Naioth? God miraculously defended David. But what did David do next? He fled from God's refuge um, uh, at, at Ramah and he ran to Jonathan. He turned to man. Now has it ever turned out well in scripture when a man has fled from God, taken his life in his own hands and gone somewhere else? Has it ever gone well? No, it hasn't. I mean, did it work out well for Abraham when he fled from Canaan to Egypt? No. Did it work out well for Elimelech and Naomi when they fled Israel to Moab? No. Did it work out well for Jonah when he fled Nineveh for Tarshish? No. And David is on the run here uh, because he has stopped trusting completely in God. He's trying to find his own way out of the predicament. And he's going to be running for a long, long time before he realises, oh, first instinct was the right instinct and he returns to the Lord and complete confidence and so David is in a bit of a tiz and Jonathan does what any loyal friend would do he tries to calm David down and give him some reassurance so Jonathan said to him by no means you shall not die indeed my father will do nothing either great or small without first telling me and why should my father hide this thing from me it is not so See, Jonathan is not only a son to Saul, he is also a military leader and a chief advisor to Saul. Saul doesn't act without first consulting his son. 
And so David's report just doesn't add up in Jonathan's ears. How come he's, he's after you? I mean, the last time that we had point of contact upon this matter, Saul uh, decided to uh, not, uh, my father decided not to get you anymore, David. He, he repented of his aggression and there was peace. You were restored to the army, you were restored to the courts. And it would seem that Jonathan is ignorant of the events, of the events at Naioth, where he, Saul had sent three sets of messengers to take David and eventually he'd come himself and he'd been humbled by the Holy Spirit. Now, why do you think Saul hasn't told Jonathan about Naioth? Well, it's probably because Saul knows of his son's disposition towards David. So he's starting to keep things from his son. There's a rift here between Saul and Jonathan. Plus also it's embarrassing. You don't really want to get that, that, that story get out, do you? That you were stripped almost naked and humbled before God and made to prophesy. Don't worry about it, Saul. Your secret's safe with us. It's not as if it was written down in a book and recorded and been spoken of for 3,500 years afterwards. Jonathan has the word of his father and he has the distressed ramblings of a disheveled David. Who's he going to believe? Well, we go on and David took an oath and said, your father certainly knows that I have found favour in your eyes and he has said, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step, but a step between me and death. So David needs to get Jonathan on board, so he brings some gravitas to the situation by swearing an oath. And this causes Jonathan to stop in his tracks and can reconsider. Oh, David is serious here. I better pay attention. And so Jonathan says to David, whatever you yourself desire, I will do for you. Now, back in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David had such confidence in God. He could brush off the abuse of his siblings. He could reject the armour of the king. He could stand in front of the whole army of Philistia and take on, unaided, the most fierce soldier of the Philistines that the Philistines had. Jump forward to chapter 20 and he is in fear for his life. There is but a step between me and death. Where is this confidence in God gone? Where is this assurance gone. David has gone from being a place of complete trust in God to a place of complete insecurity. Incidentally, we are all but a step between life and death. We never know when we will be breathing our last breath. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And so it begs the question, are you trusting in God today? Do you have a relationship with God today? Because if you have not put your life in God's hands and you take that one step from death, so from life to death in the next 24 hours, you will not go to a place that's nice. Today is the day of salvation, declares the word of God. Today you must make a choice to put your life into the hands of Jesus Christ as your saviour so that whatever tomorrow brings you will be safe 
And so David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat, but let me go, that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that I might run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice for all the family. And if he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. So David devises a plan that will test the temperament and the attitude of Saul and test the temperament and the testimony of David to prove to Jonathan whether David is irrational or his father is in fact homicidal. Now Israel operated on a lunar calendar which means that they determined their dates based upon the moon's orbit around the earth which and it takes 29.5 days for the moon to complete a lunar phase, so says Google. So each new moon marked the start of a new Jewish month. And in Numbers 28, verses 11 to 15, um, there was a prescription under the Mosaic law to hold a special series of sacrifices at the beginning of the month, at every new moon. And so this formed the basis of the new moon feast that Saul is hosting. Now, in our highly developed country, we don't have a new moon feast. We've just reduced it down to pinch punch first day of the month. I rather prefer Saul's idea of having a grand feast every time there's a new moon. But uh, anyway, Saul used this feast as a way to unite all his high officials. And David, being a commander in Saul's army, would be expected to be there. His absence would be a surprise, but forgivable if there was a pressing reason. However, if Saul intended to use the feast as an opportunity to seize David, then his absence would incense Saul and expose his true feelings and intentions. So David proposed to hide for the rest of that day, the following day and the third day, and then asked Jonathan to cover for him, giving enough time for Saul's true intentions to come to the surface. Jonathan had cut a covenant with David in 1 Samuel chapter 18, where Jonathan had bound himself to David and which had formalized the natural and the spiritual bond that existed between these two men. And so David appeals to Jonathan on the basis of that covenant in 1 Samuel 18 to deal kindly with him. Otherwise, if you're not going to deal kindly with me, you might as well kill me now. And it would seem that David is just a little paranoid about his relationship with Jonathan here. If Saul told his son everything he intended to do, and if Saul intended to kill David, how would Jonathan not know? In effect, David is saying, are you still with me, Jonathan? Or are you with your father? And Jonathan is quick to allay any fears David has and to affirm the covenantal bond between the two of them, because he says in verse nine, but Jonathan said, far be it from me, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? In effect, Jonathan says, how dare you, David? I'm a man of my word. If I knew my dad was out for your blood, I would not hesitate to let you know. So then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me? Or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. Both of them went out into the field. So David's fears are assuaged and his mind turns to the practicalities of their plan. How is Jonathan going to get word to David about the outcome of Saul's attitude? 
and Jonathan has a plan and he takes David to the field where he can explain his idea, which is where we move on to the second part, the covenant, the third part, the covenant. So let's just read verses 12 to 17 here. Then Jonathan said to David, the Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety, and the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow, because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Now this is interesting. While David is concerned about his life and his future, we see that Jonathan is concerned about his life and his future. See, before Jonathan tells David his plan, how to get the report to David based upon what his father's reaction is going to be, um, he seeks to cut a covenant with David. Now, you might be scratching your head and thinking, well, hang on a minute, didn't Jonathan cut a covenant with David back in 1 Samuel chapter 18? What, what then is this in 1 Samuel chapter 20? And it's quite simply this. This is a second covenant. There are two covenants that were made between David and Jonathan. Now, a covenant was a special contract or treaty entered into in the ancient world uh, that bound two parties together. They could be individuals, they could be families, they could be nations, but covenant was the means by which they came together. And the relationship forged through a covenant was deemed to be closer than that of your bond with a family member. So close was a covenantal relationship, and it would form a lifelong obligation from one party to the other and from that party back. Lifelong obligations. It would make the two people, or the two parties, inseparable right up until the point of death. And Jonathan proposes the terms of the covenant as follows. He starts in verse 12, and he says, the Lord God of Israel is my witness. So the first thing he does is he calls God as a witness to this covenant, the same way God is a witness to the covenant of marriage. And then he places out um, the obligations that Jonathan will have to observe in this covenant. He says, when I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety, and the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So these are the obligations in the covenant on Jonathan. He will sound out his father in the next day or two concerning David. He will then report back to David his findings, and if Saul intends evil towards David, Jonathan will then aid David to escape, preserving both David's life and his future generations. But then there are the obligations upon David. And these obligations are in verses 14 to 17. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house 
forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. So these are the obligations on David towards Jonathan, that David will not cease to show loving kindness to Jonathan, and as Jonathan has done to David, uh, uh, yeah, and then David will not kill Jonathan, and David will not kill the offspring of Jonathan. And that might seem a somewhat paranoid of Jonathan to think that David might kill both him and his offspring. But you've got to remember the culture of the ancient world. When a new dynasty displaced an existing dynasty and assumed the throne, it was common for that new dynasty to wipe out all surviving members of the old dynasty, thus preventing any chance of a revenge assassination. And so this is what Jonathan fears. So in effect he's saying, I will preserve your life and your family today, and you will preserve my life and my family tomorrow. And the terms were agreed, the covenant was cut, and the hand of the Lord was invoked in the vows being made. That he would have called either party to account if they failed to keep the terms of the covenant. Now, there were two types of covenant in the ancient world. I think I've got them written down. Yes. You've got the parity covenant and you've got the suzerain vassal covenant. Now the parity covenant was between two equal parties. So they had equal obligations towards one another. And then the suzerain vassal uh, covenant was when you got a, a higher power and a lower power. Typically um, a, a, a nation would come in and occupy another nation and that would be the suzerain and then the, you have the vassal nation and so there would be a covenant between these two nations, the greater with the lesser. Now the first covenant between Jonathan and David back in chapter 18 was a suzerain vassal treaty. Jonathan was the greater party and David was the lesser party. And Jonathan, being the greater party, bound himself to David, the lesser party, in a covenant of love. This covenant, in chapter 20, is a parity covenant, because they were both equal parties in this covenant, and they both promised and vowed exactly the same thing, that they would preserve each other's lives and the future generation from, from, from them. Now what is amazing about this second covenant is Jonathan's faith. Jonathan has no doubt David will become king. He not only believes, he knows a day will come when David's enemies will be cut off. He knows a day will come when David will come into the kingdom that has been promised to him by God. David, on the other hand, has no such faith at this point. He's living in fear of his life with no hope for tomorrow. Remember what he said? It's just a step between me and death. There are times in all of our walks when we have great faith like Jonathan and we have little faith like David. And when you have great faith, your job is to support those with little faith. And when you have little faith, your job is to lean upon those with great faith. And together we can support one another. That's why it's so important to belong to a local church, to a body of believers, so we can help each other out in our individual walk with God. You cannot live the life of a Christian by yourself. 
God has put us together to be a support and an encouragement to one another. That's family. And there is a wonderful fulfilment of this covenant between Jonathan and David uh, concerning one of Jonathan's sons called Mephibosheth. Desperately want to talk to you about that this morning. Discipline has stopped me from doing so. But if you want to read ahead, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Um, And we'll have to wait quite some time till we see the fulfilment of this covenant in action. But suffice to say, both David and Jonathan are men of their word, and we should be also. So we're on to the uh, the fourth section, the signal. So let's read verses 18 to 23. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone of Azel. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I had shot a target. And there I will send a lad saying, go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them and come. And then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you, go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed the Lord be between you and me forever. So now, the covenant having been made, Jonathan tells David his plan. So, as this is a feast for all the high dignitaries of Saul, each person will have a designated space, and it will be self-evident David is missing. Tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed. Now, the ruse to keep David absent from Saul's feast was not really built upon a lie. We have every reason to believe David was invited home to Jephthah of Bethlehem by his older brother, that there was not only a new moon feast in Bethlehem, but that it had evolved into an annual feast for his family. So David had legitimate grounds to be absent. However, to seek to be absent from Saul's feast from the son and not the host, that is a bit icky. Thus David would leave today, go to Bethlehem, then return in two days back to Gibeah to the agreed place of the stone Azel uh, where they would meet and Jonathan would report to David exactly what happened at the feast. And uh, Jonathan says, I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target and then I will send a lad. And the message that he sends to the lad will actually be a coded message to David, so David knows exactly what the outcome is. And so, uh, if it's good news, the message will be, get the arrows and come here. So in effect, what he's saying to David is, it's good news, come here. But if it's bad news, the message will be, the arrows are further back, go away. And so he's saying to David, it's bad news, go away. We come here or the go away will tell David all he needs to know. Primitive. Perfective. And so we get to the feast. So, reading verses 24 to 26, it says, Then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now, the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. So the new moon feast goes ahead as planned, and David is absent as planned. 
and Saul's suspicions are not immediately aroused by David not being there. Now the feast is built upon a command in the Mosaic law, so ritual cleanliness uh, is a prerequisite for participation. Yet purification would only take 24 hours to come to effect, so the very next day Saul would expect David to be there. However, you've got to wonder at Saul. He has sent servants to arrest him at his home. He then he sent three sets of servants to take him at Naioth before he himself went to seize David. I mean, I've got to be honest, Saul's got to be a bit screwy if he thinks David is going to turn up at court. But maybe that's part of his instability, I'm not sure. Anyway, verse 27 we read, And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? Now it's the second day of the feast. The guests arrive and take their place, and before the food is served, Saul notices David's absence once more. And so Saul asks where David is. Now, we've got a red flag already here in the way that Saul addresses David. He doesn't call him David, he calls him the son of Jesse. Now, Jesse was a lower-class citizen. David was a commander in Saul's army. Why did he not ask, where is Commander David? And not only that, David was married to his daughter. He was part of the royal family. Why not ask, where is my son-in-law? Instead, he uses the derisory term, where's the son of Jesse? betraying the ill feeling he has in his heart toward David. And you can feel the discomfort in the atmosphere as he says this. Reading on in verses 28 and 29, it says, So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, Please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. Now, if I have found favour in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. And therefore, he has not come to the king's table. So Jonathan repeats the rehearsed tale and makes excuses for David's absence and awaits a response. And, small, and Saul smells a rat. And we read in verses 30 to 31, Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Saul suppressed venom that was intended for David is now spat out at full force at his son, Jonathan. You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Now, this is a very loaded insult. It basically means, you son of a whore. Or according to Matthew Henry, quite literally, you bastard. That's what he calls him, suggesting that Jonathan is not a legitimate son of the queen. Or as we might say, you're no son of mine. This is a deep, deep, grievous insult towards Jonathan. And Saul is disowning his son at this moment. The reason being, he knows Jonathan has chosen his friend over his father. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse, he says? Saul no longer has any doubt in his mind who God has raised up to be the one to ascend to the throne after him. It's David, the son of Jesse. 
Now, Jonathan may be the crown prince, yet his actions have preserved the life of the one who will keep him from ever sitting on the throne. And so Saul lays it down on the line for Jonathan. Now, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. This is your last chance, Jonathan. Bring him to me or else. And watch Jonathan's response. Well, we read in verse 32. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? And so Jonathan defends David like he had done once before. However, this time there is no pacifying Saul, his father. And we see Saul's response in verses 33 and 34. Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, but which Jonathan knew uh, that it was determined by his father to kill David. And so Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. That's quite a reaction, isn't it? His own father trying to kill him. Now we spoke at the beginning of the instability of Saul. Now we see it in full force. One minute he is talking about preserving the throne for his son. The next minute he's seeking to take the life of his son. Saul's descent into a murderous rage is now fully exposed for all to see and know. And it's this murderous rage which will dominate the rest of his reign until he dies. So Jonathan leaves the table enraged. His loyalty to David was not a blind spot, as some may suppose, but a response to what he knew was right before God. This is a righteous anger for, from a righteous man. And so now we come to our final section, the separation, where David and Jonathan meet, and Jonathan reports to David what he found. Reading in verse 35. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him. And then he said to his lad, Now run and find the arrows which I shoot. And don't you just know that Jonathan is walking out to that field with a heavy heart, with a bow weighing heavy in his hand, and each arrow is drawn with a weight of sadness. How has it come to this? He must wonder. And as the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was with Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. And so Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows, came back to his master, but the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. And then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go, carry them to the city. So Jonathan fulfills his oath and covenant promise. He fires the arrows at the agreed signal and then communicates the agreed message, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. And we know this is the dismissal uh, that neither he nor David wants to hear. And David, who is hiding behind the rock of Azel, hears and immediately knows for certain what he already knew in his heart. Saul is after his life. Now the word used for lad here tells us of a mere boy, so maybe a boy five to ten years of age, too young to have any sense that there is a subtext to Jonathan's actions or words. And so when he returns to the city, there is no risk of him betraying Jonathan to anybody. And uh, the signal had been agreed, assuming David would have to flee immediately, 
but the pair have a precious few minutes to speak unseen before Jonathan has to return to the city, before they have to separate. And so we read in verses 41 and 42. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. William Shakespeare said, Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say good night till it be tomorrow. Yet there will be no morrow for David and Jonathan. David couldn't stay and Jonathan couldn't go. So this deep friendship, bound by covenant, by two covenants, has to face a separation, which perhaps both hope won't be for long. In fact, David and Jonathan will only meet one more time before Jonathan dies in battle. Would you believe, on that one last occasion when they meet, they make another covenant with each other? There's actually three covenants between David and Jonathan. That shows you the depth of relationship that they share, the bond between these two people. I'll let you hunt out their last meeting and read about their last covenant. We'll get to it eventually. And so they kiss and they weep together. Jonathan bids David go in peace and they part company. One to face an uncertain future with his father, one to face an uncertain future as a fugitive. But both living in the will of God. Amen. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, I guess in a sense, all of us don't know what tomorrow brings. All of us are uncertain about what the future holds for us. We might have plans, ideas and notions, but who knows what will be required of us. But Lord, I pray that as far as today's concern, help us to be purpose, to live in the will of God, to read your word, to heed your voice, to obey your commands and to do your will. Fill us all, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, empower us and equip us, and give us a heart that desires you above all else, we pray. For Lord, we thank you that just as Jonathan and David bound themselves to covenant, we thank you, Lord, that you've bound yourself to us by means of covenant. And we thank you, Lord, that it's a covenant that lasts for all eternity. Praise your name, Lord. Amen.